This is Leah Everett Burks with the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection at Michigan State University. And this is Brand Protection Stories, stories about the practice of brand protection by those who live it. In Brand Protection Stories, we talk to those in the brand protection community about particular cases in their careers. Through some stranger than fiction, real life scenarios, we learn about the practice of brand protection and the challenges faced by brand owners worldwide. Uh, I, I, I think when you look at the, the way this was being positioned, you know, this isn't just taking away from, from one particular brand. And, and, and I know that you know, when, you, when we deal with counterfeiters, they, they can become somewhat blinkered or focused on one particular brand because that becomes their niche market. Whereas, you know, arguably Mr. Perslove had kind of diversified his portfolio, if you will, and had, and had, had encroached upon many artists, not only those that we've talked about, whether it be the Beatles or, or other more well-known, but some up-and-coming artists and those that are genuinely struggling to kind of get their foot on the ladder. And, you know, when we look at, you know, th those actions, that's why I think the judge was so disappointed because, you know, it wasn't just... if. if there's enough people I think in the market might say, and I've heard this sadly, well, some of these big brands earn you know, billions of dollars. It's only a few thousand you know, in this particular case. What does it matter to them? Well, yeah, but you multiply that by hundreds of thousands across the globe and it becomes a very, very significant problem. Do that for the music industry, for music artists who that is their primary income and that's their, their career. It's, it's destroying their livelihood. Chris Horn was a detective for the Metropolitan Police Service London for 17 years. He served on a series of Pan-London specialized operational teams involved in the investigation of major crimes, including child murder, drug supply, and domestic violence. Following his work in law enforcement, Chris led Hewlett Packard Enterprises internal security investigators as the Investigations Security Director for the Ethics and Compliance Office from 2015 to 2018, having joined Hewlett Packard in 2012 as the Regional Investigations Manager in charge of driving consistent ethical and compliant behavior within the organization. Chris recently retired from HPE as the Business Security and Integrity Group Senior Director responsible for HPE's brand and market share, where he accelerated the delivery of next generation analytic, intelligence gathering, internal and external investigative services and risk mitigation, essentially making it harder to steal, fake or fraud HPE's product portfolio. His global team focused on major risks by minimizing the impact of illicit competition and business risks while leading world-class next-generation solutions through an intelligence-led and communications-focused organization. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Good morning. Though this story harkens back to a time of bootlegging music, when the landscape of the music industry was quite different, we chose to talk about this case today because it lays a foundation for examining the changing challenges 
based in brand protection and reminds us that the threats evolve. Through the mechanism of this UK pirate's crime, which is now somewhat outdated, the lessons aren't and are still relevant. Not that long ago, counterfeits were primarily available in physical locations, whether storefronts or displayed on blankets or on folding tables on sidewalks. Now online is the brand's primary challenge in protecting their brand. So Chris, this case occurred when you were with the Metropolitan Police Service in London. That's right, yeah. So this is, a, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, a relatively old case, but I thought it was an important one to talk about because for me, when you look at any type of crime, whether it relates to IP infringement or any other criminality, there will always be an element of progression and growth because criminals like any other you know, businessman or businesswoman will want to progress their trade and they won't just continue to do the same thing. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this really interesting case that uh, happened back in the, the beginning of the 2000s when I was much, uh, much younger. Oh, <laughs> and me too. Uh, <laughs> so this case involves uh, a bootlegging pirate by the name of Mark Persglove, who had about a 13-year career span as a music bootlegger. Uh, interestingly enough, he ended up in jail in the US and the UK. And it pains my heart to hear some of the artists that he violated their rights, uh, people such as the Beatles, uh, Eminem, Madonna, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, Coldplay. Um, you know, it, again, these these are these are music icons. So the fact that he took their intellectual property and you know, in in a criminal sense, stole it is just heartbreaking. No, absolutely, and I, and I think that's probably the uh, the record collection of many of us uh, of this day and age. But I, I think what's interesting about that is that arguably they are the brand owners. <clears throat> they own their music. They own the rights to their music to a large extent, either them or their their uh, um, uh, their management team. And because of that, that's why they are bootlegged. It, it's why today we see big brand names being counterfeited because people want those big brand names and. That's why I think there's some relevance to this particular case and how it progresses today. Let's, I think it's important as well just to go back and talk a little bit about bootlegging because it, it sounds uh, perhaps a somewhat antiquated term, but, but it's really a, a copy of a product that, that may or may not exist in its real form. <clears throat> and by that, I mean the, the, the CDs that, that were being created were being obtained through illicit means. And what was happening is Mark Perslove, either personally or eventually through a, a series of others, was paying people to attend music venues, concerts or otherwise, and record music. That music was then being put onto CDs and being sold as legitimate material that was otherwise not for sale. And in, in fact, some cases shown as, you know, um, you know the prize piece of music that you know was very rare, and so there was an element of uh, of demand that that kind of came with that. And so, 
because the music was being created uh, and the demand existed, it fueled the process. And over a, a number of years, uh, Mark Purse Club amounted uh, several million pounds uh, of, of you know, profit that arguably, and in fact, I, I kind of looked back uh, at, at a press article when I was a detective when I, when I led this case of, uh, of what I said then, which was had he had been a, a legitimate business person, he would have probably made just as much, if not more, as, uh, as, as, a, as a normal trading entity. Uh, unfortunately, he chose to go down this route. But yeah, absolutely. It was an interesting case in that it spanned not only the UK, it bled into the US, where he was convicted through uh, an, uh, infringing in the US through the FBI's investigation. Uh, and, and actually, there's some, some quirky names, which, uh, again, I'd forgotten about until I read the, uh, the news article of some of the... the the music labels that he created, effectively, he falsified to, to showcase uh, what he was actually doing. One of them was called Criminal Records, another one was called Wanted Man, and another was called Fugitive, which, which was quite ironic in the story. Very, very clever of him. Um, <laughs> so so to, to make these recordings, he recruited some people in the industry. Is that right? He, he recruited a number of people either from from the industry, whether it be sound art, uh, recording artists uh, that were actually, you know, basically knocking out versions through the back door effectively. So these were, were people who were being paid to to produce music and, and give him copies. And then, of course, he was able to, to multiply that in uh, and, and make his millions. And talking about his profitability, I read an article that said that um, the profit margins were about 1,500%. So he, he was really making a lot of money through this criminal endeavor. Well, I think if you, if you create any kind of infringing product, the initial upfront cost is creating, for want of a better word, the mold. Once you have that, you can knock them out through, you know, a pretty rapid process. And of course, your your return on investment will, will continue to grow. Um, but of course, then you've got to make sure that you have uh, more products. And the dif difference, I think, with this than perhaps other brand owners is that if you have, for example, one particular um t-shirt or one particular handbag or one particular pair of shoes you know you don't automatically have hundreds or if not thousands of versions of that whereas in the music industry of course there are many many artists many many different versions of, of similar songs and so those iterations were what made the the product become more valuable and certainly the uh, the profits for him were were very good i see so you mentioned the U.S. action, which was coordinated with the FBI and also an industry association group, the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA. They, they set up a sting operation in 1996, um, which, which interestingly enough, I believe they entertained Mr. Perglove at Disneyland and... Um, got him interested in uh, bootlegging um, for the U.S. market. And again, this was something that was coordinated with RIAA and FBI. Um, he was imprisoned in the U.S., served, uh, I believe, six months, was then deported back to the U.K. and ordered by the court here in the U.S. not to return to the U.S. for 20 years. 
but um, he continued his operation in the UK. He, he did, and, and actually um, became very much noticed by virtue of the, the infringing in the US, but also in the, in the UK by the, the British phonographic industry, which is the similar entity. And of course, um, the IFPI, which is again, the International Federation, um, were also involved in helping identify and realizing actually Mr. Perslove hadn't stopped and in fact had continued to, con you know, to grow his operation in the UK uh, while maintaining relationships and business engagements with um, other countries as well, including Japan, Germany, uh, and indeed the US. So this wasn't a case of he's been removed from the US and, and has stopped. Uh, in fact, this was the, the continuation of his, uh, of his efforts, which is what uh, my investigation led to uh, back in the, the early 2000s. Right. So that's what brought, uh, brought you in with the London police. And as I understand in the UK, he actually had an office that was behind the Royal Albert Hall, which uh, to me is almost blasphemy to be a music <laughs> pirate and have your office there. Um, but if you could talk to us about how you picked up the case, um, as you said, I believe that that was in the early 2000s. Yeah, so at, at that time, the, the IFPI reached out to the Met Police and, and looked at the, the issue and asked us to, to consider whether we would um, continue the investigation criminally, because of course they, they couldn't do so. Uh, and as a result, we looked at the evidence, looked at the information that they had obtained, whether that be through surveillance operations, um, prior information, really just building the case as you would expect. And as a result of that, that the case uh, came to me, fortunately, and that was my, I guess, my first introduction to, you know, IP and uh, infringing products and counterfeiting and copyright laws. And, uh, and that's how the process started. Copyrights protect the way an idea is expressed and can take on many forms, such as musical composition, lyrics, photos, and even an arrangement of dance steps. This right extends only to the form in which the idea appears or is expressed, not the idea itself. Copyright, with its legal right of creation and protection, provides only the creator with the right to reproduce, publish, and sell an idea for a certain period of time. Copying of copyrighted materials such as music and movies without authorization is called piracy. In the US, the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998 extended copyright terms. It is one of several acts extending the terms of copyrights. Following the Copyright Act of 1976, copyright would last for the life of the creator plus 50 years or 75 years for a work of corporate authorship. It is also known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Steamboat Willie, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon and the first animated short by Walt Disney, was created in 1928. Under the 1909 copyright scheme, the Mickey Mouse character had copyright protection for 56 years with renewal expiring in 1984, with the impending loss of its copyright of its mascot, Disney began serious lobbying 
to push for changes to the Copyright Act. As we got further and further into the investigation, it, it was pretty obvious that this was more of a criminal enterprise end-to-end -end that had amassed millions of pounds through years of, of uh, the engagements. And as such, the, the final prosecution that we, we decided to go with was actually conspiracy to defraud, conspiracy to defraud the music industry and indeed those artists. And as part of the prosecution, we had actually worked very closely with the music industry and had, had Mr. Persglub not had pleaded guilty, uh, we would have indeed had some of those artists um, you know, hopefully turn up and give evidence of court. So it was a quite a high profile case uh, back in its day and uh, was really something that opened my eyes to other ways of dealing with uh, you know, infringing products and, uh, and, and criminals, which you know, they are. Right. And as I understand, you were talking about some of the artists that were willing to testify. I mean, those were names like Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney. Um, we're ready to go and, and take the stand and talk about this crime, but he did, in fact, plead guilty to conspiracy to defraud. Um, I believe he was sentenced to three and a half or four years, but there was an and some additional time that was tagged on because he failed to turn over assets. That's right. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, just prior to the start of this investigation, and I think the act was in, it, you know, came into into fruition in two thousand and three, uh, was something referred to as POCA or the Proceeds of Crime Act in the UK, which was a, a fantastic piece of legislation brought in to address the, I guess the the, the criminal profits uh, of of those that were um, doing things which gained money. I mean, of course, there are some crimes, for example, you know. If you are taking drugs, you are committing a crime, but you're not physically getting any money from it. But there are lots of crimes out there that you can benefit from financially. And so the, um, the UK courts recognised that there needed to be legislation to address that and properly seize assets, whether it be cash or property. And of course, property could be anything from real estate to vehicles, stock options, bank accounts, and we'll get there in a moment, but even more realistically nowadays, things like cryptocurrencies and uh, types of things like that, that are, are very much at the forefront of, uh, uh, of criminality around the world. And so the, the Proceeds of Crime Act really brought about an opportunity for us to look at the, the profits of Mr. Persglove and say, well, you have this, you know, million dollar plus property at the time uh, in Chelsea, you have a uh, $100,000 plus Aston Martin you're driving around in and Rolex watches that you're wearing and uh, cash in the bank, etc. These are all criminal profits from your enterprise of your acts. And as a result, the court ordered that uh, Mr. Persclub had to return 1.8 million pounds of his criminal profits that we were able to trace. And uh, he didn't, and as a result, received a further five years imprisonment. So, in fact, the, the act of failing to pay back his criminal profits gave him more time in prison than the actual offence that he committed in the first place. So a really strong piece of legislation that, you know, is, is often used by law enforcement in the UK. But, of course, there are elements of civil uh, liabilities which enable the act to come into play. And, you know, there are scenarios where, of course, um, private entities can take actions to recover 
losses through civil actions. And of course, if we look in the UK, the balance of, of proof is different from a criminal prosecution to that of a civil prosecution, from a um, beyond reasonable doubt for crime, for criminal, uh, versus um, uh, the, the civil uh, expectations, which are um, more, more lenient and, and less so uh, than, than that of the criminal. So it's, it's a great piece of legislation and something that has been used now for a number of years, both in, in private and public sector. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, and as you list out, you know, his, his assets <clears throat> and the amount of money he made from this crime, uh, it's interesting legislation because, as you said, it allows the government to seize those funds because they are profits from, from criminal acts. Um, you mentioned, you know, he had multiple homes, uh, fancy cars. He also had an, an interest in uh, artwork. Is that correct? He did. Um, if I remember rightly, now you're really testing my brain to go back this far. If I remember rightly, he had a he had a Salvador Dali um, picture in his house, which uh, did make us laugh because of the you know, the way he he kind of tried to create this image, and you know it was really a profitable you know business for him, and that was a a wonderful statement piece for that. I mean, there are lots of people who might be able to, for for example, afford a nice Rolex watch for a few thousand dollars if they save up. Well, he went beyond that and said, you know what, I'm so extravagant, I'm going to have a nice Salvador Dali picture in my house. So yeah, yeah very much the, the the interesting parts of the, the cases you deal with. It's, it's interesting too, some of the other episodes of brand protection stories that we have done, uh, some of the other criminals exhibit that same behavior and that same lavish taste and get blinded by greed uh, not really considering what they're doing is harmful, um, and you know what they're what they're doing is is an actual crime. Though um, I, I would say they they all know it's a crime, but they really do get involved in the the luxury of uh, this space of of criminal activity. Um, so so, Mister Persglove, when you when you investigated him. Um, were there certain aspects of the investigation that, uh, that you found um, particularly interesting? I think when you, when you look back on it, it's, it what's, what's interesting is that you are effectively taking apart a business and you have to look at it that way. So you have to look for the bricks and mortar physical locations, especially when you're talking about product. And here, of course, we were talking about CDs. And that needs real estate. You need to store that somewhere. And how do you store it? And where are you acquiring you know, the, the means for that? And the, like anything, you're not going to necessarily have that sitting in your, in your office at home or your lounge. And when we did the, the raids of the properties that we identified that he had got for storing these, you know, it was very much set up like a business. And therefore, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to go through, to catalog all the information, much as it does for brand owners today. And, and so there's no real difference in, in the fact that you've got this physical commodity that needs to be reviewed, assessed, documented, cataloged uh, before you can you know, really start to understand the scale of the, the issues that you're dealing with. I, again, going back to whether or not Mr. Purse Club understood 
his actions were illegal. I think you know his prior convictions in the U.S. of course made it very difficult for him to argue that fact. And of course, as we mentioned already, the irony of some of the the, the names of the music labels that he created himself, you know, whether it be Criminal Records or The Fugitive, I thought was just you know the irony. And in fact, it was mentioned by the judge as part of the the sentencing. Right. Yeah. It's it's the acknowledgement that he knew what he was doing, um, and I think the judge was. Uh, pretty incredibly incensed. And in fact, I, I think one of the quotes from the trial was that he was looking to deprive Mr. Persglove of as much as he lawfully could. Um, yeah, so. I, I, I think when you look at the, the way this was being positioned, you know, this isn't just taking away from from one particular brand and, and and I know that you know when you when we deal with counterfeiters they they can become somewhat blinkered or focused on one particular brand because that becomes their niche market whereas you know arguably Mr. Perslav had kind of diversified his portfolio if you will and had a, and had, had encroached upon many artists not only those that we talked about whether it be the Beatles or, or other more well-known but some up-and-coming artists and those that are genuinely struggling to kind of get their foot on the ladder and you know when we look at you know th those actions that's why I think the judge was so disappointed because you know it wasn't just if if there's enough people I think in the market might say, and I've heard this sadly, well, some of these big brands earn you know, billions of dollars. It's only a few thousand you know, in this particular case. What does it matter to them? Well, yeah, but you multiply that by hundreds, thousands across the globe, and it becomes a very, very significant problem. Do that for the music industry, for music artists, who that is their primary income and that's their, their career. It's, it's destroying their livelihood. And so that's why I think that the judge was particularly disappointed uh, at the time since. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So music obviously is consumed differently these days uh, through streaming. As if we look at hard goods, uh, counterfeits are also, hard good counterfeits are also distributed and consumed differently these days, primarily through online rather than physical locations. And if we think of the piracy, music piracy and hard goods counterfeiting, what do you think this case in particular provides as a good takeaway? I think the first thing that I would say is that you cannot stand still. Whatever your industry is, you have to think about what is happening in your industry as you grow from a business perspective but also what is happening on the illicit side of the house that is either trying to catch up with you or more than likely being ahead of you in certain aspects and try and tackle that in, in, a, in a unique and different way. I gave um, a talk on a, on a podcast recently and I, and I used the phrase and everyone, everyone's discussed it um, many, many times in the industry, this, this whack-a-mole approach. Well, well the whack-a-mole theory, if you will, exists because it's the standard bread and butter approach dealing with the same issue. Well, if you're tackling the same issue in the same way, then it's not really making an indent. We're not doing anything different. And so that's why I, I look back on this case and think as the music industry has changed, as has the way we've consumed music, as has the way we have acquired music, as has arguably the way that we listen to music now. Um, 
it, it's it's obtained through like say through streaming but it's also become extremely popular with you know as I, as I say that you know with earbuds on you know that you can just be much more remote with your with your music listening habits today and so it's it's critical as we look at how we tackle those problems we understand the, the existence of the problem in the first place and I kind of go back and it's it's, it's, it's probably a, a and not a very nice way of, of addressing it, but I kind of go back into another aspect of my old policing career, um, which sadly was dealing with um, uh, uh, child abuse images. And if you go back mm. to the way that child abuse images were originally created because of the way that the, the, the legislation existed, there were people who were shipping printing plates one plate at a time because the legislation said you can't print, you can't ship or you can't um, transition a whole image. So the way they got around it was they found this loophole and they, and they shipped in single plates. Well, of course, nowadays it's all digital. It's all done, you know, diff very differently. But every criminality will have a nuance to it that will enable them to look very differently at the problem but find a way around it. And that's exactly what's happened here in, in, in you know, the, the way that this case was being managed and of course today as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation you know people are less and less um you know finding that counterfeits are are being sold in in the sort of marketplaces traditional marketplaces on on, on you know market stalls versus the digital online marketplaces because of availability access deliverability and uh, and, and and the way in which we can transact and of course that goes into what i mentioned at the beginning you know how do we how do we purchase these goods now um is there a, a link into cryptocurrencies and what that brings well if that's the case do we start looking at our problem very differently thinking okay well let's look at the the outcome let's look at the the way that they are trying to sell these products and look at the problem differently i think that's where i would um i would focus my attentions right yeah great advice because examining how the criminals are, are circumventing um some of the strategies that brands may be imposing um i would say many brands settle on a strategy um and Kind of leave it alone thinking it's it's going to work but what the criminal is doing is figuring out how to circumvent that and modify their behavior so that they're not further detected and i think what's important in what you just said there is is brands need to continue to monitor what the criminals are doing to circumvent and modify strategy accordingly because absolutely and, and and i think that's one of the reasons why you know engagements with you know MSU and, and, and your team uh, and, and industry bodies like the IACC or, or Agma Global or others that exist today that bring together industries that can talk amongst themselves freely about developing issues really helps us understand how these situations are occurring, what is being done at an industry level and, and how that's being uh, addressed. I, I would like to say though that there will always be a need for that as I refer to that bread and butter, you know, policing of the issue. 
right? I mean, you can't just say, I don't know, you can't, you can't just remove every police officer from the street and say, we've got a really good strategy on how we're going to tackle crime because you won't have anybody. And you, you still need that, that day-to-day work that's going to happen because that is what delivers you information. Uh, for me, I think it's critical to be very intelligence-led. You have to start building that picture and gathering information from lots of different sources, lots of different data points, making sure that you've got a system that enables you to understand what that data means and gain really good business insights from it. And that will enable you to then focus on those bigger risk areas. Look, for example, at if, you know, and again, if we go back to this, you know, this discussion around the Proceeds of Crime Act and, and taking money away from offenders, well, do you really want to spend your time, your money, most likely, because you will probably need to engage you know, either an in-house or an external law firm or other specialists to, to, to help you in this process, um, tackling somebody who, who doesn't have any, uh, any assets versus somebody that you can say, right, we know they're connected to this company, this company, this company. We've identified through our analytics and research that there are correlations with you know, this asset and, and, and you know, those vehicles and, and et cetera, et cetera, and build your case, that's when you can really start to make an impact. And I think that is, is where it becomes very relevant. So Chris, um, thinking back on this Purse Glove case from obviously a number of years back, but if you could select one word to describe the case, what would that word be? eye-opening. Ah, okay. With respect to how the criminal modified his behavior, how he continued to commit the crime, even while in jail in the U.S.? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's probably enough movies out there that talk about people continuing their crimes in jail to to argue that one. I I think it was eye-opening for me in a number of ways. One, the, the, the case in itself was somewhat unique to me, certainly at that time as a police officer. Uh, it, it was most certainly one of the, the largest, if not the largest bootlegging case that had, had been led, um, certainly in the UK and, and potentially globally at, at that time as well. And the, the number of aspects of, of, of that case that became important. So the, the relevance of having a strong intelligence lead up to kind of open that case. So that was really important. Then you need to have really strong, I guess, business industry, arguably brand statements from key areas. So really having your subject matter experts articulate the damage and the impact that was being caused by the crime. That I think was also key. And then really truly understanding it. You know, when you're dealing with, you know, IP infringements on a, on a day-to-day basis, you may be the subject matter expert in your field for your, for your own brand or, or even at an industry level. But understanding some of those differences and really getting to grasp of, of those big key cases can really start to open different doors. It also connects you with people in the industry by the very nature of what you're doing. Here I am X number of years later after this case, and I'm still talking about it. Why? Because it, it rings true today, what you take away from those learnings. And I think that's why it was eye-opening to me. You know, I could, you know, take somebody down for, you know, drug supply, and you know, it probably wouldn't have had the impact on me that this case had. Uh, and it probably wouldn't have given me the learnings that this case has 
um, you know, several years later in my, uh, my working career. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us in uh, our Brand Protection Stories podcast. And thank you for doing the hard work. Thank you. And thanks for the invite. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that you know, other brands out there think very differently about you know, the, the inception of the problem to try and figure out how they're going to tackle it longer term. Among admired artists, musicians hold a special place in my heart. I have no actual musical talent, but a great appreciation. And many of the musicians whose copyrights were violated by Purse Club are on my all-time favorites list. The amazing artistry and hard work that goes into the creation of a song, the lyrics, and the musical composition should be respected and revered for what it brings to the world. As stated by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, copyright is imagination made real. It is the ownership of a dream, an idea, an improvement, an emotion that we can touch, see, hear, and feel. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Brand Protection Stories, please contact ACAP Assistant Director Carrie Camel at kkamel at msu.edu. In the next episode, Dave Lake, formerly of the Phoenix Police Department, tells us about how a counterfeiter took advantage of the cost-saving staple, coupons. Though it became fodder for a Hollywood comedy, it's no laughing matter. Due to this case and the counterfeiting of coupons, American households will not have the safety hatch available should and when we experience another financial crisis. Thanks for joining us today for this edition of Brand Protection Stories, produced by the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, or ACAP, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Please visit us at a-cap.msu.edu. ACAP is a nonprofit organization founded in 2009. It is the first and only academic body focusing on the complex global issues of anti-counterfeiting and product protection of all products across all industries and in all markets. In addition to this series, we offer certificate courses in brand protection applied education and academic courses, executive education, student internships, live summits and virtual events, groundbreaking research, and publish the quarterly digital industry journal, The Brand Protection Professional. This is Leah Everett-Burks with ACAP. Until our next session, keep protecting your brands and the world's consumers. Keep it real.